starting off in our hero slot today, Devil's Harvest is the title of the book, a very haunting book, I have to say. It's going to take you into places that you don't necessarily not, uh, not necessarily really want to go, not least to South Sudan, where blood, sweat and tears mingle deeply in the dust. It also takes you to Bristol and to the dark corridors of MI, uh, MI6 in London and into the lives of a British botanist, uh, a flatulent RAF air marshal and a rather damaged young Sudanese woman. Well, bring them all together is Andrew Brown and Andrew, believe it or not, is a Cape Town advocate where he gets time to put all this together. Who only knows? He's also a one-time winner of the Sunday Times Fiction Prize that was for an earlier novel called Sleep Lullaby. And in another book you might remember called Street Blues, he wrote about his experiences as a police reservist. Well, welcome back, Andrew. Nice to have you with us. Lovely to be here, mate. And fascinating to read your book, from which I am still recovering. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's been described variously, well, it's been described, let's say, as a political thriller, whatever that means. It does mean that you've got the world's politics to draw on, the world's geography to draw on. And you pinpointed South Sudan. Let's just start with South Sudan. Why South Sudan as a setting? The story was originally going to be more upbeat um, than it turned out to be. Uh, after 50 years of civil war, South Sudan decided to secede from North Sudan, and they had a referendum and a new country was born. And I was fascinated by that. The idea that civil war in Africa can be solved by redefining your colonial boundaries seemed to me like a very good idea. And I went a few months after the new country was born with an idea of a story around that. And what I found was the same kind of euphoria that we had here in 1994. Um, nation building, unity, a real sense of, of a new country getting to its feet. Of course, since then, um, we've seen the North cause as much trouble as possible. We've seen destabilization and we've seen it slowly slip closer and closer towards civil war again. Um, and for that reason, the book is is more serious than it was originally going to be and, and is dealing with more difficult issues than it was originally going to. But because it's set in a realistic South Sudan, you have to obviously deal with the mm. reality on the ground. Mm. Just refresh our memory. I mean, it really was quite recent that they became a, an independent country. W yeah, it was it's when? About, they are about two and a half years okay. old. Okay. And so you went there? I went there. Um, I've been three times now. So the first time was just after the referendum, um, when they had a new government in place. And then each time I've been back, I was, I was back at the beginning of this year, in fact, to hand the book to people in South Sudan who'd helped me write it and who'd told mm. me their stories. Unfortunately, it was a time of war again in South Sudan, and many of the people I was looking for had been dispersed and, and dislocated. So I found almost everybody. Um, which was great. Yeah. It was a very emotional journey for me to go back and to find them um, and very emotional to hand over the book yeah. to them. And quite frightening too because I'm hesitant to know, I'm nervous how they will receive the book. It's, it's a book by a foreigner about their trauma, their country, their tragedy. Um, and one of the questions I've asked myself repeatedly is, do I have a right to write that book? Can I write a book about somebody else's country when I don't live there? I haven't spent that much time there. Um, the answer to my, that I've answered myself on, on the basis that I do have that entitlement, that we all have that entitlement to write a book of fiction and to set it anywhere we want. Mm -hmm. But we do have a responsibility to try and get it right in terms of how we're describing the country, how we're seeing the country, that we don't do people a disservice 
but it's fiction, and yes, we can set it yeah, yeah. wherever works. Hence, you're going back three times to verify, yeah. and, it, and it's quite clear in the book that you have been there. It's yeah. not something, somebody's imagination at work. This is somebody who has trod those streets. And I suppose, it, you know, being taking the responsibility, you have to be very careful not to make judgments or assumptions. Absolutely. Nonetheless, you went there three times, presumably cold, um, and you, you managed to get one of your one of your uh, characters. You managed to get him there yes. uh, on the pretext of um, researching some obscure. Well, it's not an obscure plant. Well, it probably is an obscure plant. But anyway, that's how he got there. But how did you get there? And what sort of research? How did you? Who did you find to take you round, uh, other than Rasta the barman? In, in retrospect, it was a bit crazy mm-hmm. um, because I didn't know anybody there. Not a soul. And I arrived with a visa which said tourist. Um, and I walked into passport control and there are men with AK-47s and sunglasses and bandanas on. And I walked up to the customs official and handed my passport over. And he said, where are your papers? And I said, no, this is my passport. And he said, no, no, no. Where are your papers? Who are you with? Are you United Nations? Are you Médecins Sans Frontières? Are you with the church? When I said, no, I'm on my own, and then he looked at my visa and saw tourists. There was a long pause, and then he wandered off to go and speak to his superiors, and then he came back after a long time, stamped my passport, and said, our first tourist, welcome to South Sudan. Oh, yes. <laughs> Doesn't that <laughs> tell a story? Yeah, and so your heart sort of, you know, your yeah. heartbeat goes up and then, and then comes down again. Um, but I was, I was met with friendliness, with interest. With, there are astonishing people doing astonishing things in that country, both locals and foreigners. You know, the UN workers. I met people from Amnesty International who were incredibly helpful. I made friends with people in the Catholic Church who helped me. So very quickly you make friends. Uh, I think there's something about being in such a tense, war-torn country that... People don't have time for nonsense. They don't have time to use euphemisms, beat about the bush, play games with you. They say things directly. They either like you or they don't. They're either going to help you or they're not. Um, and I like that directness that I came across mm. in everyone. I imagine tourism as, as in its infancy, if indeed it's even <laughs> been born. I think not born <laughs> yet, yeah. Yes, I can't imagine there are too many glossy brochures there. Mm. But interesting and wonderful to hear that story about the recurring theme, because in the book there's this recurring theme of, but where are your papers? Yeah. Um, and we have your, your gentleman character, in fact, just scientist, and everybody's completely baffled by that. But you know what's interesting from all that you say now, it makes so much sense around the book. It feels like you didn't really have an agenda, unlike your complicated young Sudanese woman. You didn't have an agenda when you got there. You got the stuff, you spoke to the people, and I imagine you sat on the plane with your gin and tonic on the way back and thought, right, what am I going to do with this? Is that how it works? Very very much so. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the dialogue in the book is real dialogue. Mm -hmm. They're real conversations that I had with people. They have a crazy turn of phrase, I think because many of them are Arabic-speaking as their first language, English as their second or sometimes their third language, um, they put words together in a different way, um, and they have images that are, that are different to the kinds of images that we would usually deal with. And that, for me, made the language just so rich and interesting. So I tried to keep much of that conversation directly verbatim in the book. Um, but yes, definitely, I didn't have an agenda as to this is the story I want to tell. It was very much a case of going there and finding out what is in South Sudan, what are the issues. And in fact, the book changed as it went along, because I'd finished the book and we'd almost finished the edit when 
the war broke out again. Now, that wasn't in the book at all. Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen it coming. Um, and quite frankly, I didn't know what to do about it. Uh, there was always a sense of, well, now the book's irrelevant because it's, it's a book about a different conflict and now there's a new conflict. What we did is in the edit we then put in some references to the new developments in South Sudan to try and keep it up to date. But it's so fluid, it's quite difficult. I suppose what will always be relevant are the way uh, people's behaviour, mm. people's conversations, and then mm. the other things that go on. Mm. Let's get on to your characters, because you've got this associate professor, Gabriel Coburn, who, mm. whose name gets um, mangled. mangled very, very <laughs> badly, but it's very amusing. So somehow you had, to, you had to get him there. How did you, with all this material that you had at your fingertips, how did you create the story? You've got these three main characters. How did you get that lot together? And tell us about them. Tell us about, start with Associate Professor Gabriel Coburn. He, he was a challenging character for me. In fact, they were all challenging, quite honestly. I realized that I struggle in my writing to write, to have central characters that aren't just lovely and likable. I find it very difficult to write a character who I know I don't particularly like or, my, or the readership won't particularly like. I think it's naive, probably, or immature, um, as a writer on my part, but I have the sense that if I have a character who's, let's say, racist or sexist, that people are going to think ill of me. Um, I'm slowly moving on from that, but so for Gabriel, I wanted him to be quite unlikable in the beginning, quite fraught in the beginning, and to slowly transform him during the course of the story, so that it's, for me, the book is as much about his journey emotionally as it is about his journey mm -hmm. physically. But of course, what I did is I, I made, I transformed him in sort of chapter one into chapter two. So that by chapter three, he was quite likable again. And my editor said, no, 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 you've got to, you've got to live with it. You've got to string this out. It's got to be mm -hmm. slow. You've got to actually live with him as somebody who you don't particularly like. Highlight his bad qualities and then make that transition more believable. So in the edit, we, I did, a lot of the edit was dealing with him as a character and getting him right as a character and slowing that transition down. Sure. My admiration for writers knows no bounds. You know, <laughs> the thought of having to rewrite and then rework the whole way of it, it's not even just m using the words. And, I'm, and I will say you have a wonderful, wonderful way with words. There's some very, um, very, very rich bits of text here, and hopefully you'll read us a bit in just a minute. So just staying with Gabriel then, yes, he starts off he's re seriously uptight. Mm. <laughs> bit yeah. of, you know, a little bit awkward. And then and then, right at the end he has a complete sort of epiphany and things com yeah. completely change. So, um, okay, let's, let's just park him for the moment. But mm. nonetheless, he is a scientist and he's the one that, um, um, getting somebody in my headphones, but I'm, I'm sure it's sorted. Um, he's the one who comes along and everybody keeps saying, but where are your papers? And he says, yes. but I'm a scientist, which in itself was interesting. And nobody really gives credence to a scientist. I mean, in a war situation, you know, who's a scientist? About yeah. as relevant as, as nothing, yeah. really. So that was quite interesting. Do you know many scientists? Do you My know dad. many botanists? My father was a scientist. So he was a zoologist. So is your reincarnate? No, in, okay. no, not at all. Not even close. But, okay. um, yeah, the idea... Gabriel's view on the world is that he's a scientist and that puts him above politics, above emotions, above the sort of tatty, dirty bits of, of humanity because science is pure and science is, is something that we should aspire to because it's objective. And he slowly learns during the course of this journey that in fact science is as subjective as anything else. 
science is as political as anything else. And him being in South Sudan looking for a plant that is going to hopefully give him a full professorship is as problematic politically uh, as anything else that is going on. Um, so I had neo-colonialism in mind, the sort of new colonialism that we see in Africa, uh, China coming in and taking resources out, the Western countries coming in, big corporations coming in and taking resources without this time bothering to actually take the country over and give it an infrastructure or a government, but simply taking. And he, for me, was meant to epitomize that and the problems that I have with that kind of conduct. You know, the other thing that was interesting, the other thing that you picked up along the way was um, how much material there is in, in air, air travel. Because at one point he's he's sitting next to some Canadian young woman who is yeah. extremely disapproving about the plant that he's going off to find because yeah. it's got to do with genetic modification. Yeah. What is the name of the plant? Is it yeah. a real plant? It is a made-up subspecies of, of an existing plant. <laughs> I had fun. But yes, I had. No, no, no. You know, fiction is, a, is is great fun because mm -hmm. you can play these games. What was interesting for me is when I went to Bristol University to the botany department to spend some time there to do research on it. It turns out that what Gabriel is interested in in that plant is, in fact, a legitimate research direction that that botany department is taking. Uh, the idea that global warming can potentially be uh, ameliorated using crops that can reflect sunlight back is there is yeah. a PhD thesis out there written on it. Wow. So, golly, yeah. <laughs> Extraordinary. So that was so that was a, well that was two journeys. So you yeah. went back and forth to South Sudan. You went to Bristol. Yeah. Why Bristol? Why botanists? Because you write about Bristol in in as much uh, colourful detail. It clearly you've been there and spent yeah. some time at the the shops and the waterfront and yes. so on, as you have in Juba, which yeah. is the town in in South Sudan. Why? I wanted to take Gabriel from a safe, secure. British academic environment and take this poor man and stick him into the depths of South Sudan and see what... Get him off his bicycle. And get him off his coffee. bicycle, yes, absolutely, um, and see how he coped. And so I needed a place that would fulfill that. It had to be academic, it had to have a good university, it had to have a good botany department. And Bristol just you know, came up and ticked all of those criteria, so Bristol it was. Um, which I liked, I must say, being there, I, I liked the city very much, but it fulfilled the needs of a rather drizzly, rainy, south-west uh, English town. So, yeah, I was happy with the tour. So that was the one journey, and then there's a, yet another journey into into the, you know, the rather arcane uh, environment of MI6. Yes. <laughs> That's that, a lot of work yeah. for one book, isn't it? It was a lot of work. I enjoyed it, I have to mm. say. I, I think I've enjoyed this book more than any of my others, perhaps, save for Inyenzi, which was my first book written about Rwanda. That will probably always be the closest to my heart. But in terms of enjoyment and my personal enrichment, this book, I think, has been the most satisfying and fulfilling for me. Uh, I really have, have loved it. And playing with MI6 and playing with the military has been great fun, too. The idea there is really that you know, Bartholomew could never now be a soldier on the battlefield. This is now the, the RAF this Air Marshal, George Bartholomew. Yeah. Yeah. So he has terrible bowel problems and you know, his health isn't great and he's a bit grumpy. Um, and with, those, with those, that kind of health problem, he could never actually be a soldier out there and, you know, and at the battlefield on the war line. But with modern warfare, 
with drones and missile strikes and he can quite happily be in his office back in you know, Southampton and wherever it is that he's, he's based um, and send missiles over halfway around the world and kill people basically playing video games mm. uh, while rushing off to the toilet in between. <laughs> so that was, that was what I was doing with yeah. him. Um, what I've also tried to do in Devil's Harvest, which I didn't really try in any of the, of the other books I've written, was to use humour to lighten things. Um, so there's a bit of toilet humour as well with Bartholomew. Um, but I've tried humour in other aspects just to try and lighten it so that one doesn't mm. get overwhelmed by the, the burden of the, the trauma that is South Sudan. Mm. Just before we leave um, George, uh, how did you... I imagine it would have been easier to do your research in Bristol and South Sudan than it was in MI6. Yes. How did you... Did you gain access? Did you, who were your moles? It's extraordinary in the modern age how much you can find on the internet and how freely available some information is. Obviously not, not all. But for example... Um, I, was in, I was researching drones, and I found papers published and put on the web by MI6 and by the United States talking about collateral damage from drone strikes. And the one from the America was talking about Pakistan, and their figure that they came up with, I think, I can't remember if it was 26 or 28%, 28% of collateral damage is perfectly acceptable and to be expected, said the paper. And it took me a while to work out what collateral damage really means. It doesn't mean damage to the building nearby. It means dead civilians. And 28% mm. is regarded as being the sort of benchmark that one should aim for. I mean, if I was MI6 or United States, I wouldn't be putting that kind mm. of thing out there on the web for everyone to read. But there it is. You can go and pick it up. And So, yeah, a lot of research mm. done online. And then I was in London and had a, got as close to the MI6 building as I could without being arrested. So some, some on-the-spot research and a lot of web, web-based research. Yeah, yeah. We're going to come back to, um, we're going to, come back to the heroine, this, this, this mm. young Sudanese woman. I'm longing to know she's real, but, <coughs> well, or if there was somebody that you came across, because, <coughs> excuse me, looking at um, your acknowledgments, you did a lot, you, as you say, you've made a lot of friends, you, mm. you found a lot of people... Did you explain to them what you were doing? I did. I always made a point that they understood that I wasn't a journalist and that I wasn't there yes, the word to... journalist is, yeah, is not cool in this it's not. It's not good, and it's full... Juba in particular is full of shady characters. You know, in, in the book, there's the South African Yanni, who is a mercenary Horror. type, but mm. he's there. I mean, Yanni is based on real South Africans, who were hovering around in the bars and up to no good for sure. Um, so there's a lot of shady stuff going on. There's a lot of fear about um, people spying for the north, for Bashir. So Bashir had spies everywhere, and some were pointed out to me. People would quietly say to me, just be careful of that person. And they didn't need to explain why. Mm. You knew exactly why. So you ha I had to make it very clear to people, I'm not here for any company. I'm not here as a spy. I'm not a journalist. I'm not anything. I'm writing a book, it's fiction, I want to tell a story about your country. Yeah. And then people opened up, and I heard, got to hear their stories, and it was, yeah, incredible, in fact. Mm, just as a matter of interest, do you record, do you take notes, do you just try really hard to remember as much as you possibly can, then scuttle off and write it all down? Yeah, I try not to write or record while yeah, I'm talking to people, because it's, it's very intimidating, mm -hmm. and, in, and, and particularly in that environment where there's so much fear. 
Um, so I, yeah, I just try and remember as best I can what people have said, and as soon as they've gone, I write it, write it all down. Yeah. And as I said, much of the conversations are verbatim, and quite a lot of them are with. You would have seen the, the young lady that I um, acknowledged in, in the book Aisha, who's a refugee who I made friends with there. Um, a lot of the conversations were with her because she told me about her stories of being a refugee aged 11, walking on her own aged 11 from Juba all the way to Kampala in Uganda because of the fighting, living in a refugee camp for three, four years um, before she was found by her family, then sent to school, got her matric, and uh, she's now in fact doing a journalism course in Kampala. Mm. I'm helping to, mm. to fund that for okay, her. Cool. So, yeah, she was just one of many people, but she was the person whose stories were most profound in terms of informing the book. Mm. And that character, Alec. Sort of sounds like there may be a, another book there, and I'm sure, but it must be very difficult for somebody in your situation to know when a book's, when the, when the content of a book is going to be dated. Yeah. Um, I mean, already, you know, there was yeah. war post you having written it, and you think, ah, oh, what, what do you do? How yeah. does that affect a book? Because a story yeah. is a story. Yeah. But if it's a little bit, if it's old hat, um, beyond what's going on in the newspapers, it's very, very difficult. The political thriller is a difficult genre. It is a difficult genre, yes. We're going to talk a little bit more about this book in a minute. We're talking to Andrew Brown. We're talking about Devil's Harvest. We're going to get to the, the character that I'm longing to know more about. Her name is Alec. We're right now we're talking to Andrew Brown. He is actually an advocate. He is practicing in Cape Town. But he's the author of a number of books, the latest of which is called Devil's Harvest, which has taken us deeply into the heart, of the dusty heart of South Sudan. Um, Andrew, let's have a quick reading, shall we? Because I was, I was saying how, how colourful, how uh, fascinating your, actually the quality of your writing is. Just give us a little bit about Juba, I think, that you described Juba. Is it the capital? Yes, that's yeah. the capital. And this is a, a section where Gabriel has just arrived in the city and he's being driven from the airport back t uh, towards his, well, they call it a hotel, but in name only. Um, and his driver is a man called Rasta, who is a real person who, who I met in, in Juba and befriended. The city, in name a city, its sprawling size rather than its infrastructure making it more than a town, was an ambivalent mix of restlessness and stasis. It buzzed with activity, yet showed little for it. Foreign aid workers roared around in air-conditioned Land Rovers, while everyone else squashed into buses and trucks or clutched onto a 100cc Chinese motorbikes, fumes spewing out the back. Gabriel watched in astonishment as a bike drew up alongside them, twisting around the dangers in the road, with two passengers holding on, one of whom was carrying a struggling chicken in each hand. No one wore a helmet. The woman on the back saw his horror and waved a chicken at him in greeting, the fowl thrashing in mute resistance. Then as the, op the road opened up in front, they were gone in a plume of grey-blue smoke and feathers. That is Boda Boda, Rasta informed him. Very cheap, but you must choose an old man as your driver. The young ones are too dangerous. Gabriel had never been near his bicycle without his riding helmet securely strapped. He could hardly imagine himself swinging his leg over a motorcycle to be driven unprotected about the bustling roads of Juba. Did you do such a journey? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. Border border is the only way to get around in Juba. It's these yeah. tiny motorbikes, no helmets. You just, they're everywhere. You just jump on the back and, and off you go. And, and take your life in your hands. And take your own life in your yeah, hands. Yeah. You're quite yeah. something. Did you take a lot of pics? Did you take a lot of photographs and no. sort of reference? Or I wanted to, okay. but you can't. You can't. It's, it's, yeah, there's soldiers everywhere, and the, they hate 
anybody taking photographs. Mm. Um, occasionally I'd pretend to be talking on my cell phone and then snap a few just to, so that I had some kind of um, photograph to Visual look at, yeah, some reference mm. when I got back home. But the truth is it's such an intense place that those images sear themselves in your, your memory. Mm. You don't really need a photograph to remember what, what you've seen yeah. there. And it's so beyond anything that one can comprehend in... You're, you're doing nothing for South Sudan's aspirant tourism department, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say. Um, but yes, interesting, and we, de we see the damage that actually happens to somebody's camera a little bit later on. So, yes. tell me about um, Alec. She is, uh, she's an extraordinary, she's had, so, so, so like a sort of frightened gazelle. Mm. Tell me, uh, tell us how she fits into all this, and tell her on whom she was based. She's what I'm trying to do with her is capture what we were talking about, the, the directness of people, um, the straightforwardness, the honesty in what they say to you. Um, so Gabriel, coming from the sensibilities of Brist academic Bristol, when he first meets her, he's completely taken aback. He, he regards her as being very, very rude, um, inconsiderate, insensitive, because she just says these things directly. And if she wants something then she says so, and if she expects something, she says so. And whereas he plays games, euphemisms, and he doesn't quite say what he really wants, what he really is feeling, because that's rather un-British to do it. Um, and so there's this antagonism between the two of them. Slowly during the book, they start to work each other out, um, and he in particular starts to realize that it's not rudeness. It's just given where she's come from, given who she is, given the country that she's in, um, she has to be direct. Life is too short and tenuous to play games. And that's what I found very, very much when I was there. And it's, it's very refreshing to deal with that kind of situation. But having said all of that, people do have their own agendas, obviously, because and people their are, own story. And their own story. People are poor. People are desperate. She is poor and desperate. She's desperate to find out what happened to her father, who has been killed. Um, and that is her agenda, and she doesn't share that agenda with Gabriel. So although there is this directness and this honesty about what she wants and what she feels, um, she's hiding a very big secret from him, and she's actually using him. And it's only disclosed to him right at the end what all of this is really about and, and what the journey for her has really been about. And obviously he kicks against it as as we go along through the journey, but... Ultimately, he reaches a point in the book where he has an opportunity to get out. So for days and days, he's complaining that he just wants to leave and he wants to stop the journey and he wants to go home. And then finally, that opportunity arises and he realizes it's the last thing he wants to do. He has to see the journey through to the end. He, he, he needs to know what's at the end. Um, and for me, the book was never going to be called Devil's Harvest. It was always, when I, throughout the time that I was writing, it was going to be called Leaving Juba, which captured my own emotions around leaving Juba, about being there and then, and then leaving it, the difficulty that I found in saying goodbye to Juba and to the people there. And it was quite crazy because it must be one of the hardest places in the world to visit, but it gets under your skin immediately. And when it comes to saying goodbye, it's... It's quite mm. emotional. So mm. that was the original name of the book. Um, it was changed to Devil's Harvest for, you know, by the publishers for, for marketing reasons, for selling reasons, which I understand completely. I like the title very, very much. But for me, the resonance will be with that, with that title of Leaving Juba and the, and 
That, in fact, comes up in the book towards the end expressly. There's a wonderful line that keeps going around in my head and I keep l losing it, but it's something about in Sudan, um, an empty stomach has no ears. Yes. Isn't it? It's a wonderful yeah. line. Did you hear, yeah. did you hear a it lot of those? Absolutely. Sort of, People mm. talk often in those kinds of riddles and rhymes and proverbs and those kinds of things. Um, and there's some, yeah, there's some, there's some lovely ones. Um, and they make, make some of them up as well. I said on the one occasion that I was there, oh, the, this heat is just too much. It was 44 degrees and 95% humidity, and you think you're going to die as a Cape Townian. Um, and I said, oh, this heat is so much. And the person I was with said, no, 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 but this is just the first born of heat. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that yeah. kind of turn of phrase, I just, mm. yeah, if you could write it all down, it would be wonderful. Yeah. It makes sense of the ending, about which I'm going to say no more, but it does make sense of the rather emotional um, speech at the end, yes. which clearly you felt yeah, uh, as much, much as, so. as wrote. Yeah. And young Alec, was she based on anybody? Was she based no, on a young woman that you... No, not in? really. Her stories are based on many of the people that I met, mm. um, but she is com completely fictional, and I felt that... I felt that the main characters n needed to be entirely made up, that no one could, particularly her, that no one could put their hand up and say, well, you've taken my stories or you've taken me and you've put me in there. So I was quite conscious of that, so I made her up as, as best I could um, to make her as distinct from anybody that I'd actually met. Now that you have left Juba, are you, yeah. are you done with South Sudan or might we I don't think read I'm more? Um, I don't think I'm ever going to be done with it, but I'm not sure that I will write more about it. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I interviewed last year Mukesh Kapila, who was the UN representative to Darfur uh, during the Darfur genocide. Um, and he recently contacted me and said, would I be interested in writing a book with him, which I was very, very honored um, to have that request. I'm not sure if he has Sudan in mind, but he, I know he is working in Sudan at the moment. So it might be that there's more of a factual book coming out of uh, out of my time in South Sudan, but I think in terms of fiction writing, I'm I'm going to move on. Mm. Um, I'm not absolutely sure yet where to. I do have a thing about conflict zones, so clearly, and there are <laughs> and there are enough in the world to choose from at the moment. Are so there not? Surely you don't not. have to go much further than Cape Town. No, in indeed, in some indeed. Andrew Brown, it's been absolutely fascinating. I'm going to leave it at that, lest we give anything more away, because it's amazing how you've woven it all together with all this colour. And I imagine that most writers sort of think, oh, thank heavens for that, it's done, it's finished. But I imagine you might have felt a bit sad that this was finished. I am very emotional every time I finish a mm. book, um, and particularly this one, because you feel like you are saying goodbye both to the story but to the characters too. Yeah. And you live with them for two years, they are part of you. And then you just walk away from them and say, okay, yeah. you know, I'm moving yeah. on to other characters now. Sure. Well, you could always read it again. Yeah, read it again, yeah. <laughs> Andrew Brown, thank you very much. Thank you, Nancy. Lovely talking to you. the uh, author of Devil's Harvest, and if you'd like to get hold of a copy, it's published by Zebra Press.